All right, three, two, one. No one else clapped. <laughs> Zach didn't clap. You damn dirty dogs. All right, welcome to Genre Podcast. We read and watch genre stories and films to really figure out what the hell is going on here. What is up with this genre stuff? We just finished up a round of good old-fashioned cowboy films, and now we are on to Nautical Tales, starting with The Lighthouse by Edgar Allan Poe. Guys, what do you know about this story? So we got a lighthouse, and we got someone who seems to be washed up on the lighthouse. They're a little bit scared. They go back and forth between being scared and being okay, but they only seem to survive three days. We have January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd, and on January 4th, the fourth diary entry, there's nothing. Zach, where did they go? Where did they wash away to? So that's the thing about wanting to know what happens next is because this is a tale told across three days and really three paragraphs, right? Because this is an unfinished story from Edgar Allan Poe. Despite the fact that it's unfinished, I feel like there's something here that we can talk about. I mean, I guess that's really up for debate, isn't it? Is there enough here in an unfinished early draft of a story to talk about? I think it's an open question, like, what the intention with this story as well is. Because I read on the Wikipedia page, at least, that the bottom of the page on which this story was found has lots of space left for writing. So it seems to suggest that it's unfinished, I think, based on that information. Or, alternatively, you could read that and think it's finished, like he chose to end there. But in the very least, we know that there's no missing pages. Like, this is all that was written. That's what we know for sure. But the question is why, I guess. Well, there's, a, there's like a choice between how to interpret it and whether it's an aesthetic choice or whether we want to take it as an aesthetic choice. Like, I think of what Borges does in his stories, where, like, you can choose to make something look like a fragment. You can choose to make something look unfinished. Or, you know, we've read plenty of horror stories Call of Cthulhu is one that immediately comes to mind where it presents itself as a found diary, a, you know, a piece of writing that was discovered somewhere. And that adds to the mystique and air of it. And I think with this, this story, like, like it's, it's a diary entry. Like this is like a log found at a lighthouse is like what it purports itself to be. And then for it to suddenly imply that well we can talk about it when we get we can talk about what exactly it does or does not imply when we look a little bit closer at the story but i think that to have it suddenly cut off raises questions in the reader's mind and has an aesthetic effect of like what's going on here what happened to the character and that it that could be perceived as a choice and that could be read as highly effective in horror yeah and you know i think maybe now is a good time to get into the story because it's going to be so easy to summarize like, like you mentioned, there's three entries in this diary and then three paragraphs. The first paragraph to me, if I was to summarize, it just seems to raise a lot of questions. We know all the things we've just said, like he's on, it seems like this guy has been employed. The narrator has been, the, the writer of this diary, sorry, has been employed to watch this lighthouse. And then there are a lot of questions get raised. Like we, we ask ourselves, why is he here? Why did he choose to be here? Why is the guy before him leaving? It mentions that their boat, you know, their boat nearly capsizes in the ocean. What caused that? We do, we we raise the first paragraph raises all these questions that we don't know the answer to, 
And then the second paragraph, he seems to be in some kind of ecstasy, presumably just because he enjoys being alone so much and he's got all this solitude. Well, why is he so happy about solitude? Has he been, you know, in a very busy, like worldly position where he's surrounded by people? It's mentioned at one point he's a noble. We don't know. And then in the third paragraph, he's talking about like the structure of the lighthouse itself. And he seems to be implying that it's sort of unsafe in some way. And then boom, we get January the 4th, the fourth of the four days that are included in this diary. And then there's no further writing. And that's really all that happens in this story as far as a story or a plot goes. So I'm thinking of the same thing. There's lots of questions that get brought up. Like he just mentions that he's a nobleman. One question that I reacted to was he says that there's a prophecy. You know, there's going to be some sort of prophecy brought up. And this story is interesting. In genre, I hear sometimes, especially in horror, people say, Where is that? Can you read that line? It's right here. It says, I have not forgotten the great's prophecy. That's all it says. <laughs> it's just, there is a prophecy about this lighthouse, about him coming to this lighthouse, maybe. So it's not that he he casually drops, what is it, de Gratz prophecy. It's that, like, it's sandwiched within this fear and anxiety about this lighthouse. So, like, moving up a couple of sentences, it, it goes, besides, I wish to be alone. It is strange that I never observed until this moment how dreary a sound that word has, alone. So so he's he's positioning himself as being there by himself, and he doesn't like the way that feels when he realizes it. And then he says, I could half fancy that there was some peculiarity in the echo of these cylindrical walls. But, oh, no, this is all nonsense. I do believe that I'm going to get nervous about my insulation. That will never do. And then he mentions a prophecy. So, so it's like in these few sentences, he establishes himself as alone. But then there's something weird about his echo. And like the funny thing about echoes is like you say you are the origin of that sound. But by the time it comes back to you, it doesn't feel like it's you that's talking. You know what I mean? The, the, the distance the, in time or the way the audio ec- like comes back, bounces back at you, it feels like some sort of other is speaking. But so there's not only that, but there's something especially weird about the echo in this lighthouse. And then the prophecy. So do you think it follows from that, like the prophecy is related to this echo? Or is 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 or is just nerves set on edge and anything that could possibly be going is going to set him off? I think that all right. So so prophecies could be good or bad, right? So like it's possible that this prophecy is he will win the lottery. I don't think that's the case in this one. <laughs> I think that it's a negative prophecy for sure. Mm. And I think that the way that is train why, why of thought, do we not think so? Like what? Well, because yeah. the way that his train of thought travels from I'm alone to Ooh, I don't like being alone. To ooh, the echoes of this place are freaking well, he says, me out. I wish to be alone. Like he he wants to be alone. He says he wants to be alone. So this is part of like his his like this story is so short that character development happens across like one or two sentences. So so he he tells himself that he wishes to be alone, and he goes through all this deal of all this. He assures us that like oh he's looking forward to being alone, but. Yeah, there's just a sense that that alone like has a dreary sound to the word, right? So, so there's a kind of like dual consciousness about what is happening here, or about his feelings towards his predicament. Yeah, yeah. There seems about this, you know, cognitive dis cognitive dissonance between like what what he sort of wants and what he's experiencing, or what he thinks he wants and what he's actually getting. 
But then in the next paragraph, it seems like he's doing fine. It seems like everything is fantastic. He says, I've passed this day in a species of ecstasy that I find it's impossible to describe. And th this sudden ecstasy is almost harder to comprehend than the previous paragraph, where at least you can understand, like, yeah, he's going to be feeling a little bit unusual working as a lighthouse keeper on his own on an island floating in the sea. But, you know, what makes him so happy about this? Is that what he... Well, I think that what we have here is, in a sense, a completely different person writing this, right? So the first paragraph is explicitly on day one. And you have all this anxiety. You have, you know, he, he's talking about his time getting there. But then he goes to sleep and he wakes up and presumably part of a day passes. We have, we're, we're on to the next day. And he's writing from a completely different perspective. There's no ecstasy in the first paragraph. But the second paragraph is all ecstasy. It's like manic. So presumably some shift has happened. Something has caused him to experience ecstasy. But what is it? That's the question. It seems like it's just the beautiful sights. So you think it's the beautiful sights? Like it's something that's gone on outside of him rather than something inside of him, Bob? I think so. I think it's initial anxiety about being in a place alone for a great deal of time and having We're had a lot of difficulty to get there. And then he's settling into convince himself that it's not so scary. It's all going to be fine because he's taking in all the sights, because then it says the wind lulled about daybreak and by the afternoon, the sea had gone down materially, nothing to be seen with the telescope, but ocean and blue sky, ocean and sky with an occasional gull. So he says that he's gratified and just happy to be seen. And he even says it's ecsta he's ecstatic about it. So he loves what he's seeing and he's just looking at it a little bit more realistically, I think. Just seeing beautiful sea about him. Yeah, and I, I just think it's interesting because Zach brought up this idea of the narrator being almost manic, and you, that brought to mind for me at least like the idea of like manic depression. You know, you're up and then you're down in in these very short spaces of time, and you know, it seems like he's very quickly flipped from you know one extreme of emotion to the other. But we don't have like any pattern of behavior, right? It's just a short story. It's just a couple of days that we, we can't establish any kind of like pattern that might indicate further whether it's really what's going on outside of him or what's going on inside of him that's causing all these changes. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, that does that suggest that it was intended to be a, a, a story? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong question to ask. But in any case, what we've got, it, it makes it inconclusive what's going on in that regard. Well, let me, uh, let me just read these three sentences that start off January 2nd and then just ask you a question about it. So what Poe writes, or the character in Poe's story writes, is, I have passed this day in a species of ecstasy that I find impossible to describe. My passion for solitude could scarcely have been more thoroughly gratified. I do not say satisfied, for I believe that I should never be satisfied with such delight as I have experienced today. Now, here's my question for both of you. If I sent that to you in a text message, <laughs> would you think I was okay? <laughs> no mm. i would be very worried <laughs> so so that's just why i feel like like i can i can believe him that he enjoys the alone time and i can you know you know what i mean and i could i could believe that you know just like that everything is going fine for him and that you know events happen sure i can i can believe that but this also doesn't sound like the journal entry of someone who is like stable. And maybe I'm over reading into this a little bit, but it just like, I think that the character that we're presented with on the second day is fundamentally ecstatic and there is no ecstasy in 
the first day? Well, I just want to kind of summarize like all the things we know about this narrator. Like I made a list of like, what's the, what do we know about this guy? So we know it's his first day on this island, right? We've established that. We know he sort of wants to be alone and seems to enjoy it at times, at least. We mentioned before he's like a noble of the realm. Why is this noble of the realm working on a lighthouse by himself? You would think he's from a wealthy family. He would presumably have a lot of social prospects. Why is he out here by himself? And why was it like hard for them to even get him to work there? And we also know that he's got a dog, I think. Is there a dog in this called Neptune? I think think Neptune is the sea god. See, this is what I was not sure about. I wanted to ask about this. So Neptune, largely, is, is not to be taken into consideration in society. Would to heaven I have ever found in society one half as much faith as in this poor dog. Holy crap. I He's got a dog called Neptune. He's got right? a dog called Neptune. I only clocked it on like the third reading. <laughs> see, I was like, I, see, I thought this was like, like a Willem Dafoe in the lighthouse. You know, like, <laughs> you know, invoking Neptune to Robert Pattinson's character. Like, I thought he was like, oh, yeah, I'm alone. And no matter how big Neptune, you know, a, met- yeah. a metonym for the sea is, it's not society. So, yeah, so there's a dog on the... As well. Uh, and, but then nothing, there's no other mention of this dog in the entire story. For the rest of the story, you know, it's a very short mm-hmm. story. It's probably not even a page long. But still, they don't mention the dog again, which is weird. So, yeah, that's pretty... Oh, also, one more thing we know about him. So clearly he killed and ate the dog. One more thing we know about him, though. (laughs) One more thing we know about him. He's working on a book, he says. He's trying to write something. So he's out there for the solitude, maybe so that he can write his book. Because he says that he didn't want to live with with someone else because he didn't want to live with Orndorff. Orndorff, sorry. He didn't want to live with Orndorff. Again, who is Orndorff? He doesn't explain. Is it like his butler or servant? Is it his friend you know is it just some random schlub that they wanted to get to work alongside him we don't know we know that he doesn't like the way he smokes his pipe or his meerschaum and that's about it and you're fucking fat (laughs) yeah (laughs) and these are like the sum total of facts we have about the narrator which really doesn't add up to a particularly you know complete picture of a man by any means but it, the, the interesting thing is this story never makes any attempt to explain any of these details. It's always, this happened, this happened, and then this happened. But there's never a, this happened because whatever, or this happened as a result of, you know, whatever. There's, it's, not, it's impossible to say, so it just raises all these points, which themselves raise questions, but it doesn't really do much more than that, which is really, you know, it's peculiar. Well, I wanted, I wanted to talk about the, so the relationship with DeGrate is really interesting because he's mentioned three times. Orndorff is only mentioned once, you know, I don't want to live with that guy. But DeGrate is the first one. DeGrate says, I have to write a diary. So why does he have to write a diary? We don't know anything about that. He just is doing it. The second one is DeGrate really had to work hard to get me here. Maybe he's unqualified. Maybe something else. Maybe he's done something in his past and he's not allowed to do certain jobs. And then he says, I have not forgotten DeGrate's prophecy. So DeGrate thinks he's going to do something terrible. Why the diary? That's obviously the conceit for us being able to read his experience. But why is someone going to force someone else to write a diary while they're writing a book? Are we thinking it's just like a sort of procedural thing? Like you've got to keep records and he's interpreted that to mean you've got to pour out your weird internal monologue. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he's (laughs) really taking it too seriously. He's misinterpreted it. The onboarding training didn't work so well. (laughs) 
<laughs> onboarding training on cutters ships in the yeah. middle of the ocean doesn't tend to be so uh, smooth sailing. <laughs> this job, this job as a lighthouse keeper is terrible. The onboarding program is really not up to scratch. <laughs> <laughs> Feedback to HR. <laughs> so okay, so I feel like we've we've covered the characters. We've 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 kind of gone over day one and day two, both the changes in his circumstance and the change in his character. But we haven't talked at all about the third day, which is the final day. I think it's short enough that I feel like we could just read a couple of sentences and talk about it. How do you feel about that? Like, you know, just just go through it event by event. Okay, so just to start, and then I'll pass it off in a bit. January 3rd, a dead calm all day. Towards evening, the sky looked very much like glass. A few seaweeds came in sight, but besides them, absolutely nothing all day. Not even the slightest speck of cloud. Occupied myself in exploring the lighthouse. It is a very lofty one, as I find to my cost when I have to ascend its interminable stairs. Not quite 160 feet, I should say, from the low watermark to the top of the lantern. From the bottom inside the shaft, however, the distance to the summit is 180 feet at least. Thus, the floor is 20 feet below the surface of the sea, even at low tide. Do we feel like he's in the same mental state as day two or a different one he certainly seems to be on the come down from the previous day's high he's complaining about his job already on day three which is never a good sign the the interminable stress and it seems like this is the first time he's actually looked at what he needs to do (laughs) like he says occupied myself in exploring the lighthouse which you think would be the first thing you would do when you move on to an island to be the one-man lighthouse keeper is probably check out the lighthouse. So it's, I'm, I'm doubting his professional responsibility right. a little bit at this point. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the sky, the weather is not so great anymore. So I think everything's changed very quickly. This guy is very much on like an emotional roller coaster, even on an island by himself, <laughs> which is quite interesting. And I wonder maybe if there's some kind of deeper metaphorical significance for that. Like a lot of people speculate that this is sort of autobiography, you know, a veiled autobiography of Edgar Allan Poe in his last moments or his last, you know, few days or weeks of life. And, you know, he feels like, you know, the man in the lighthouse. I think a lot of people go with that line of interpretation. I don't necessarily want to subscribe to it or not, but I think that is like a lot of people do feel that way about this. But certainly everything's changed since the previous. Do we know how Edgar Allan Poe died? He choked to death on Meerschaum smoke. Ah, uh, yes, of course. No wonder he... That old... That old rooster hated that Meerschaum. <laughs> well, I'll point out this with the the past few sentences, is that for our narrator, nothing is right. It's not just a calm day. It's a dead calm day. You know what I mean? And it's not just the sea, but the sea looks like glass. Now, glass can have positive or negative connotations, but one thing that is certain that glass is not the sea. So there's there's this kind of like poetic derealization that's happening here in all of his language in this specific part that I don't see anywhere else. And another thing would be perhaps the interminable stairs. So like he's been in the lighthouse for three days. He knows how large the lighthouse is, but for some reason the staircase feels never ending to him. And like he'll measure it, not quite 160 feet. But I don't know, there's just this sense that the the world is kind of spiraling out of this person. Maybe I'm over-reading it, you know what I mean? But why is there poetic language here? 
and not necessarily positive poetic language either. Why? But why is this language here and nowhere else? You would think that he'd use poetic language when he's having that ecstatic day because he also describes the same kind of scene. But it's interesting here that he begins January 3rd as opposed to January 2nd, the ecstatic day with poetic language. Because the first time he just says nothing was well, to be seen, but ocean and sky, there was a seagull. And this other time is very flat. Glass. Yeah, very flat. So in, in a sense, I feel like it's a different, not not like a literally different narrator writing by the third day, but we got we got kind of a different, the, the narrator definitely has something different going on here. Mm. Each day they have a different perspective about this static location. Mm. I guess I would say every day they're in the exact the yeah. exact same place, roughly the exact same sites, the exact same images they're looking at. But the narrator has changed in a sense. So I, I mean, if we go back to the first paragraph, he's largely looking backwards. He's thinking about the people. He's thinking about his dog. He's thinking about his journey there. Second day, he's experiencing everything as it is. He, you know, it's a, a static. It's not just. It's 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 like goal ocean sky these words are just concepts that are that are entirely themselves but then by the third day the sea is now glass the the day is dead calm the the stairs are interminable i don't know what do you think john so nothing's really changing the setting's not really changed nothing's really changed in what's happened to him one thing that is changing is the weather the weather is this constantly changing thing and you know as a british person who lives on a small island in the middle of a lot of ocean, I'm well aware of the vicissitudes of of the weather in affecting, you know, how things are. One day it's raining, one day it's sunny, one day it's windy. You know, it's it's really impossible to describe. So when you're on a tiny island in the middle of what's been described as quite a choppy ocean and quite a volatile ocean, the weather is obviously going to be really impactful of how that day is going to go the weather really decides everything in the lighthouse keeper's life you know if you think about it what is a lighthouse keeper except you know a sort of safe haven when the weather's bad right really nine times out of ten so you know the weather is really important for a lighthouse keeper and it seems to deeply affect this guy's mood as well so i wonder to what extent the weather is just a causal element here Hmm. He's speaking about a dead calm. The sea looks very much like glass, which seems to me to suggest that an overcast sky and darkness. You know, a few seaweeds, but it's quite a squalid thing. Oh no, there's not even a speck of cloud. You know what? Now, now, now I think about it. Now I see that. I'm thinking it's not the weather. The weather's good on both days. Yeah, he's just imagining that the weather could get bad and saying that this lighthouse will withstand whatever weather could happen. He comes in on bad weather. He's, like you said, he knows that it could change any day. And he does at first doubt the lighthouse being able to withstand, you know, be beaten by whatever weather comes up. But then he says, no, it'll be fine. Well, let's read that that last part of this. Does anyone want to read it so that we can, maybe we can talk more about this coming storm or like his doubts about the lighthouse. All right. So I'll, I'll continue reading a little bit for this, you know, the second half of this paragraph. And then we can sort of discuss how this story ends. Um, so it seems to me that the hollow interior at the bottom should have been filled in with solid masonry. Undoubtedly, the hole would have been thus rendered more safe. But what am I thinking about? A structure such as this is safe enough under any circumstances. I should feel myself secure in it during the fiercest hurricane that ever raged. And yet I have heard seamen say occasionally, with a south wind at southwest, 
The sea has been known to run higher here than anywhere with the single exception of the western opening of the Straits of Magellan. No mere sea, though, could accomplish anything with this solid, iron-riveted wall, which, at 50 feet from the high watermark, is 4 feet thick, if 1 inch. The basis on which the structure rests seems to me to be chalk. And then the paragraph ends. And after that, all we get is a single date, January the 4th, with no entry, and in brackets, here the manuscript fragment ends. So it leaves you with an unsettled feeling. There's something about this final sentence, like the basis of the structure is resting on chalk. Like, how? Why is that the final moment? It, it, there's lots of ellipses around that sentence as well, which suggests that something's happened. But uh, yeah, what's going on there? Like, is he trying to simulate some kind of action? What? I don't know. Zach, what do you make of this? Well, I took chalk to mean like unsteady like you know what i mean yeah, like chalk yeah, dissolves so so like if a wave comes he's already said the structure is not he, he's already said that the the bottom of it is below sea level and it's hollow and he would have thought that it would have been something else where is it anyways oh yeah he would have thought that it was yeah he would have thought that it was filled with solid masonry masonry but it's not and then he looks at it and he's like, oh, this is hollow. And then it looks like it's made of chalk. So I think that what's on his mind here is that should a big wave come, which he has all reasons in the world to expect it, the lighthouse, and with him included, would presumably just be washed away. What do you think, John? Well, I just want to point out something that happens earlier in the story that I think is, sorry, a detail that's revealed in the first paragraph that I think might be of, maybe of some use here when he mentions that this island or this lighthouse is usually manned by three people and yet he only has one predecessor and he's going to be one single man attending it now so it it seems to me that there has to be a reason why three which are usually putting out there like what is it that they couldn't find anybody else and why would they have such difficulty in finding people for this particular lighthouse when usually they get like three of three people who are willing to work on them so there seems to be a detail here that like there seems to be something about this island, about this this lighthouse in particular. And one of those things might just be it's not a very safe construction. You know, they might most people might just take a look at it and think, no, nah, not not for me. Now nah, this is made of chalk, this is gonna go down. But now they've got this this aristocratic noble of the realm who doesn't know his ass from his elbow. Maybe <laughs> maybe they can manage to palm off the responsibility on him. And yeah, so that's kind of one thing I was thinking. And then another thing I was thinking was simply that, well, it seems like he must be writing this diary entry while he's surveying the lighthouse. You know, it's almost like he's walking around making notes, walking around making notes. The base of this structure seems to be chalk. And as he writes this, it almost seems like as soon as he finishes, something happens. That that seems to be what's implied here. Do you guys agree with that assessment? Or, you know, is there some other way of reading this? I think that it's not established enough for there to be some sort of disaster. Even though it's on chalk, it's survived for countless years. We don't know how old the lighthouse is, but it hasn't been damaged yet. And they don't seem to have had problems getting people in the past. He just seems to have, like, insisted that only he go. Like, they already had Orndorff lined up to go, and they've had three people show up every time before then. He says it's the simplest job in the world. The instructions are clear. So... I think where the horror seems to be coming is whenever he thinks about something that's totally unreasonable, it is unreasonable. And the only horror is going to come from him doing something to himself. I don't know about this prophecy, if it's got to do with 
monsters showing up or big waves showing up. It seems like the prophecy does not apply to other people who have worked at the lighthouse before. I feel like the great is only afraid of letting this individual go to the lighthouse. They're, they're not afraid of him being able to run it, but I think they're afraid of whatever danger he's going to cause himself. It's what it feels like. Well, John had asked whether some disaster happens to him immediately after he writes the word chalk. But what I notice is that chalk isn't the last word of the story. The last word of the story is January 4th. Now, I'm not a diary writing man, but I do know that when I write a diary, I put today's date when I put a date. So like, I don't finish January 3rd and then write January 4th. So presumably he survived until January 4th, survived long enough to write the date, but then blank. So what does that mean? It's like that, that's the, to me, that's the hook of this story. What does it mean to write a date with nothing under it? Well, I mean, obviously there is the outside possibility that he could be just be very conscientious and always write the you know next day's date just to save himself a task. But obviously that doesn't seem either consistent with human behavior or his behavior, behavior in particular. But yeah, I agree. It is the, like the biggest sort of mystery of the story. Like what, what what's going on there? I mean, and also I guess there's no reason there has to be a disaster. What if he just says, fuck this, I'm not writing the diary. Can't, I don't want, I don't enjoy writing the diary. I've had enough. I want a whiskey. And then he's just uh, dig rats away, you know. And when the cats, are, you know, when the cats are away, kittens come out to play. So maybe he just gets sick of writing this story. You know, we do limp, le- you know, leap to this idea that something disastrous happens or he dies. And it does seem like you've mentioned Bob that he's very unstable psychologically. And to be honest, I don't think many people could stay sane if they lived alone on an island. That's why they usually have multiple people. So yeah, it is is a very strange detail. But yeah, there's no clear answer to that question, I don't think. I think it's interesting to think about in line with Edgar Allan Poe's death. You know, like you guys are saying, it's potentially somewhat narrative as he's moving on. He's writing this and he dies pretty much a few days, I think, as he's writing this. But either, yeah, it's intentional and it is the hook of the story. January 4th, the writer who is just writing a diary, but he's still a writer, decides I'm not going to write anymore. This is no longer my life. Or Edgar Allan Poe just dies. But if the writer decides not to write anymore, and then there's just a mysterious death, when we were looking at the death of Edgar Allan Poe, the Wikipedia page just says theories as to what caused Poe's death. There's no definitive answer. It just says theories include suicide, murder, cholera, hypoglycemia, rabies, syphilis, influenza. (laughs) They said any of those could have been the cause of his death. Any of those, so, or indeed all of those, is a combination. He might have been, uh, you know, yeah. difficult to kill. Yeah, but it's like, how how do you how does that happen to someone? He, I mean, he wasn't much of a celebrity when he died. I think he became more of a celebrity after he died. But still, like, how do those records get so lost that you can't even get that there's like 10 options for someone's death? It's interesting to end the story with absolutely no answer and then to end a life with absolutely no answer too around the same time. When we've talked about all of these unfulfilled promises, it makes me think of genre and what people describe genre as. If you pick up a mystery, you're promised that a bad guy is going to get found and that a detective is going to follow clues to find that bad guy. And then people who follow that genre, if the book does not fulfill that promise, that's when the book gets bad reviews. It's not often that the writing is bad. It's that you didn't follow the rules of the genre. So it's interesting here where you have the the writer who's the birth of detective fiction and the birth of American horror fiction, 
making all of these promises that lead you to ask questions and then let's zero of them uh, be answered. None of the promises are fulfilled. It would be interesting to read this in the time that it was published and think either it's completely unfinished or it's some weird new form that breaks all the rules and refuses to answer any of your questions that you were promised picking up a horror story. John, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think it does seem to be like a, a formal challenge here like that we are supposed to maybe ask it's very possible we are supposed to ask like is this fiction or is this not fiction like and that's it seems very poe like to leave us with that like if he knows it based on most of the descriptions of how he's theorized to have died it sounds like he wasn't very well for a long time you know he was clearly not in a good physical condition so it's very plausible that he was already aware that he was dying or at least that he might die Maybe he just thought as a kind of joke, like, what if I leave this un, you know, unfinished story and it's actually secretly going to be a finished story and nobody's going to be able to say it. there's always going to be this question. That seems like the most Poe-like thing I can possibly imagine him doing. So, yeah, I definitely think, I don't know, that's my gut feeling as to what's really going on here. But yeah, obviously it's just speculation really, isn't it? I really like that idea, though. On the Wikipedia page, again, there's all there's a whole adaptation section and there have there's been a tradition since the publication of the story of people picking it up and finishing it, including the Robert Eggers, Eggers movie, which seems pretty similar. It starts out the same way, kind of. And it says that I guess he was inspired by it. But all of these people have picked it up and finished their own version of it, turning it into all sorts of different things. It's kind of like haunted house stories. You know, you just take the genre, you take the haunted house and just change it mm. a little bit. So it's like he was asking people to participate mm. potentially, because that's what happens. Yeah. You know, it's left in a perfect condition to participate, and then tons of people did, like an invitation. Do you think we were wrong to read this as a nautical story, or like a tale of the sea? I did wonder that as well. It seems to be only incidentally about the sea. I mean, it's set at the sea, and, and I think that, but I think that madness and the sea kind of are inextricably linked in at least American fiction. Not so much inextricably linked, but there certainly is a, a large amount of crossover, isn't there? Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess I just wonder, like, as we start out on reading nautical fiction, sea yarns, whatever, like, I wonder how we will come back to look at this this story after reading a few more. I really like this question. I was thinking the same thing reading it because the, the whole nautical lore is skated over. Getting there was dangerous and their their boat almost crashed. So that would have been the nautical lore story. But it's just mentioned here and the rest is all going to be contained within this lighthouse looking at the sea occasionally. Well, so, so I would point out, we haven't read Moby Dick yet, but I would point out that that book is 400 pages of writing in a very detailed manner about the day-to-day drudgery being on a boat. But the only <laughs> part of Moby Dick that people remember is the insanity and the, the mania towards the whale. And I think that I, I just, I just think that it will be worth keeping an eye on for all the tales and all of the films that we watch. Do we walk away with, memories of the act of sailing or do we walk away with memories of relationships between people who are in a confined space with each other and granted in this story it's one person in a confined space with with himself but you know you know we had a dog in this podcast now we've got a dog in the story well where's the dog where's the dog (laughs) i think another thing too is to, to pay attention to 
where is the C an antagonist? And, you know, you're saying madness is linked to the C. Here it seems like this his interpretation of the C maybe harming him is what is going to drive him nuts, but it probably won't. Moby Dick, like the sea, the whale destroys the boat, but then they're stuck in the sea, and that's where it gets dangerous, floating out in the middle of nowhere. Here, he's just paranoid about actual waves and the danger it poses. I wonder if in the other other nautical lore, it will be the sea is a monster, or, like you said, people contained within small spaces, they become monsters, and the sea is just outside. I don't know. John, what do you expect to say? Well, I just want to sort of make a link between this genre, potentially, at least a potential link between this genre and the previous genre we watched, uh, we, we, we did recently, Westerns. Now, if you think about the Westerns, obviously there's a great amount of difference in, you know, the various different Westerns, like books and films that we've, we've engaged with. But one consistent theme is this sort of notion of like law and order. Like you've got the state of nature sort of always around the edges, but you're trying to Ultimately, society is building into like a lawful society. So very often you have a lawman who brings law to a previously lawless town where there might not have even been a, a sheriff before. But law is brought into this society. And that seems to be like one of the major themes of the Western, you know, civilizing, you know, the the savage in a sense with all the problematic, you know, you know potential connotations mm. of that, you know, in mind. But the... I just noticed that it seems to me essential to the nautical law that the, this idea of the sea being between outside of any borders, outside of law, you know, out, you know, cross jurisdictions, just generally being this inherently lawless place again. Like once, you know, the laws apply on land, but once you're out at sea, you know, the, really no one can hear you scream a lot of the time. So there is this inherent like riskiness and sort of chaos implied in the sea that I think would make you insane, right? Like, I think a lot of people stay sane because there's laws and there's order and there's routines and everything's predictable. When you're out at sea, things change very much. So you mentioned that Moby Dick, there's the, you know, emphasis on like the drudgery. Sure. But there's always that unpredictability and lawlessness going on. But yeah, I think maybe that's a good way to finish this off. You know, what thinking about you know what we're going to expect from nautical law in future, and then come back to this story and see how consistent it is with the rest of the genre, and to what extent it's a, an anomaly. Yeah. And I, I'm especially interested because I know we have at least one Disney movie planned for this run, and I'm curious <laughs> to see who guess who guesses which one. <laughs> I'm curious to see how these themes are represented, not represented, Disney-fied, or just given wholesale. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. We got we got a good time ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, Zach and John. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. Mm-hmm.